In a Western, in a Western, you've got a great gunfight, right? Every single time you've got a great gunfight. And inevitably there's one man on one side of the corral and another man on another side. And, and they're, they're, they're getting ready for the hunt. They're getting ready to find out who is going to win this gunfight. And usually there's one guy who's a little more bold than the other. At least I find this in Westerns. There's one guy who's always kind of hiding a little bit. And he's kind of off in the corner and he's behind his horse or whatever. Or, or maybe he's in a building trying to get some cover before the, the gunfight goes off. And inevitably the, the, the more bold gunslinger will call him out. They'll say, hey, you're a coward. Show yourself. Show yourself. I want to see you. Show yourself so we can have this fight. He wants this other gunslinger to reveal his position. To show his person that they might actually find out who's going to win that gunfight. And you know, as we look at Malachi chapter 3, we are seeing Israel look at God and say, show yourself. Show yourself to us. We feel, God, that you are in hiding. You are being a coward. That's what Israel's telling God. You are doing to us what we don't deserve, Israel says. And you instead are blessing the enemies of us. You're hiding yourself from us. And we don't like it. God, show yourself to us. Stop being inactive in the face of evil. Show yourself. And as we're going to see, as we get into the Word of God this morning, God is going to say, Here I am. Here I am. If you want me to show up, I'll show up. But I'll show up in a manner that is going to be quite interesting to you. And in a manner that you would not have expected. Let's look in our Bibles. Open up to Malachi chapter 2, actually. We're going to start in the last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. So turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. It's also up on the screen for you if you'd like. And I believe, if the ushers haven't already, there should be a packet of uh, handouts toward the back. Did everybody get one of those? Hey, what do you know? We're on, we're on track. So let's take a look at Malachi 2.17 to 3.6. Now I want to read through all of it just to get some context, get an overview of the, the passage, and then we will dig in step by step and we're going to get some great scriptural truths here today. Malachi 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words. And this is God speaking to Israel. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say... In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, God says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners, widows, and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien or a stranger. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to this passage of your word. It's going to be difficult to interpret. And there are some very foreign concepts to us in this passage. But Father, help us to have discerning eyes. Help us to open up our hearts, see the beauty of your word here in Malachi. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take a look at verse 17 in particular. Let's narrow in on verse 17. 2.17, God exclaims, that, well, a couple things I want to point out. The first thing he says is, you have wearied the Lord. You have wearied the Lord, Israel, with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied wearied Him? In what way have we wearied Him? And he says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Okay, here, this is kind of an awkward construction. But, Basically, what Israel is doing is they're saying, God, it seems to us that you delight in evil. It seems to us that you delight in having the enemies of us succeed and prosper and having the rest of us, your chosen people, be neglected. That's their charge against God. And why are they saying this? Well, as we've learned about in Malachi, we're in about 450, 430 B.C. Just to recap a little bit, Israel had returned to Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt, but there was social, political, and economic problems. The nation as a whole was struggling there were other nations around them that were, were having undue influence on them, that were, were causing them to go away to uh, pagan gods and whatnot and intermarry and, with foreign wives. The second temple which they had built and hoped to be a glorious temple like the one that Solomon had built was looking kind of shoddy, if you will. It was built with somewhat second-hand materials. And the people were disheartened that their temple built to God was not quite like the first as, they, as, their, as their generations past remembered it. God had promised that, this, that Israel would return to Jerusalem would find a, a renewed sense of vision, of hope, and a focus. And yet, it seemed that the city and the people of Israel were devoid of any manifestation of God's blessing. It seemed, by all indication, 
that God had still abandoned Israel. And so they were saying, show yourself. Show yourself to us. We don't believe that you're on our side. We don't believe that you're with us, God. And God says, oh, you've wearied me. You've wearied me because of these words. And that's the first thing I want to just point out. I, I want us to recognize how, how awkward of a statement that is from God to us. We have the capacity to weary God. We have the capacity to weary God by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes. Our God is a very personal God. And when we fail to open up our eyes and see His history of faithfulness, when we fail to open up our mouths and recognize His goodness, He becomes wearied. He becomes in a way, disheartened. And that, that should be humbling to us. I mean, I, I wouldn't think of God as someone who could be wearied by what I say or by the attitudes of my heart. And yet he says very clearly to Israel, he's being very transparent with them. He's saying, you've wearied me. Your words and your attitudes have caused me grief. They say, show yourself, God. It seems that you delight in evil. And then finally they say, where is the God of justice? Now I want you to virtually just underline that in your Bibles. Keep that in the forefront of your minds throughout this sermon. Because that statement, that question, where is the God of justice, is the theme of this whole entire text. God is going to answer that question. Where is the God of justice? And we're going to see how he answers it. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1, the very next verse. God says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay. A little bit difficult to understand. We're going to break this up into two parts because I believe here we're looking at two messengers that we see God prophesying through Malachi about. He's going to speak of two messengers and the first is going to be at the very top. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The very first uh, sentence is one messenger and then the rest of it is going to be a second messenger. Let's deal with the first uh, at, at first glance here. So let's look at, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the New Testament, uh, you may f- feel right away that at first glance you can kind of get an idea of who this might be, uh, this, this first part in white. Uh, it may seem, it might, it might bring to remembrance something that you've seen in, in fulfillment in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And who is that person that we might be thinking of? Anybody? John the Baptist. That's right. That's right. John the Baptist. So let's move to the the next slide there. My question to you is this. Is John the Baptist the complete fulfillment of Malachi 3.1? That's the question that we need to answer today. And I I think that the answer is is going to be somewhat of a, a journey for us, that we need to kind of walk through 
struggle with together, wrestle with, because it's a difficult question to ask. Because the Scriptures seem to give some, some uh, complex answers to this question. But we're going to dig in it. And I'll tell you, hang with me, because you know what? This is going to be a little bit more difficult than what we've dealt with in the past in Malachi. But I'll tell you, when you come through portions of Scripture like this, it helps you to understand God better. And it helps you to understand God's Word better. And when you can understand God's Word better, that, is, that goes so far in terms of personal application. So hang with me through, through some of this difficult uh, text here. So the question we're going to ask is, is John the Baptist the complete fulfillment of Malachi 3.1? I want to suggest three things, and we're going to look at each of these in detail. First, John himself denied being the coming prophet. John himself denied being this coming prophet. We're going to look at a text which demonstrates that. Second, Jesus indicates that John was a type of fulfillment. A type of fulfillment. We're going to talk about what a type means or a referent. And thirdly, Malachi 4.5, just a chapter later, suggests that the final messenger of God is still a future event. Is still a future event. Now, all of this is not to suggest that John was not a fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, but it is to give a fuller picture. We're going to see a larger, larger picture of this prophecy in Malachi. And uh, I think you're going to like what you see here. This is going to be good stuff. Take a look at the very first point. John himself denied being the coming prophet. Take a look at John 1, 19-23. And I want to read this to you. This is John interacting with... John the Baptist interacting with the priests of Israel. He says this, The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John... This is what they asked. Who are you? John confessed. I am, I am not the Christ... They asked him, Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Well, who are you? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now John is quoting a different prophecy here. He's quoting one in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is similar to, but distinct from, Malachi 3.1. So John is indicating to the priests that he is not this coming prophet. He is not this coming Elijah as they understood that Elijah to be in the Old Testament. A coming prophet who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John says, I'm not him. Or at least John indicates that he's not the final fulfillment of him. Now let's look at a second reason for understanding this Malachi 3.1. Secondly, Jesus indicates that John was a type of fulfillment. A type of fulfillment. Take a look at Matthew 11, verses 7 to 14. I've, I've taken portions of this. Uh, I've taken it in context, but you can go back and, and look in your Bibles as well. But take a look at what Jesus says here. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, look what he says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. 
For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That is a quotation from Malachi 3.1, direct quotation, except for the your face part. But that's, that's in essence a direct quotation of the Malachi 3.1 passage. But then he says this, he qualifies that statement. Jesus qualifies what he just stated. And he says this, And if, if you are willing to receive it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. If you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. So you see Jesus qualifying that statement. Now this next text will start to give you a better picture of what's going on here. Take a look at one more text here, Matthew 17, verses 10 to 13. This will start to illuminate, I think, some of the fog that you might be experiencing. And his disciples asked Jesus, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah, note this, is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And I've put in parentheses, this is my own addition, but I believe it's in, in the context of what Scripture is saying here, that John has come already to those willing to receive it. Then the disciples, but, excuse me, and they did not know him. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, so what is going on here? Jesus, on the one hand, is saying, yes, the prophet of Malachi 3.1 the messenger of Malachi 3.1 is summed up in John the Baptist. That's what he says in Matthew 11, verse 10. But then he qualifies that statement and says, and he is the Elijah to come if you are willing to receive it. And then in Matthew 17, Jesus says, yes, Elijah is coming first, and Elijah will restore all things. But then he says, but Elijah has come, and has restored all things to those willing to receive it. You might be thinking, well, is Jesus making contradictory statements? Is Jesus self-refuting himself? Is this an instance where we can point to the Bible and say, aha, I knew it, I knew there was contradictions in the Bible. No. Absolutely not. What Jesus is doing and what I believe is occurring in Malachi 3.1, in, in the revealed prophecy of God, is we are seeing what's called a biblical type. A biblical referent, if you will. Let me explain what I mean. In prophecy, there are fulfillments of sorts, and there are, then there are final fulfillments. You often hear of, of Jesus Christ being the new Adam. You ever heard that in the New Testament? Adam was... A son of God created by God, uh, designed for, for blessing and, and, to, and, to, and to populate the earth and bring blessing. But then he fell, okay, Adam sinned, and there needed to come a new Adam, a new redemption, a new atonement for the sins of the old Adam, and that new Adam was Christ. If you look also in your Bibles, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll see Nathan, a prophet. And he refers to David the king, and he says, David, you are like a son to God, and God is like your father. 
That's what Nathan says directly to David in 1 Samuel 8. But then in Hebrews chapter 1, that same prophecy is referred to Jesus. It says, Jesus, you are like a son to God, and he is your father. What's happening here is that prophecy is being fulfilled in types or in reference. It's being fulfilled in stages. Jesus is saying, yes, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. He was the Elijah who has come to those willing to receive it. But no, there is still yet another coming Elijah, another coming messenger of God who is yet to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The first type, John the Baptist. The final type, the final Elijah. Okay. So what can we make of Jesus' statements? We see that John the Baptist is a type or a referent of fulfillment to this prophecy by Malachi. However, there is still a coming messenger, a prophet of God that will prepare the way for the final day of the Lord. And this, and if, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is pretty good evidence, but I'm still not convinced, and some of you may be in that boat, now I want to come to the third point. And it's within Malachi, and I think this is going to kind of put the nail in the coffin for understanding this concept. Take a look at this third point. Malachi 4, verse 5, suggests the final messenger of God is still a future event. Malachi 4, 5 suggests the final messenger of God is still a future event. And look what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, I don't know about you, but that is really similar to Malachi 3.1. In fact, I have a little chart here that I want you to see to see how great the similarities are between these two statements. Take a look at this next chart here. Okay, we have Malachi 3, 1 to 2 on the left, which is our text this morning. Okay, Malachi 3, chapter, verse 1 and 2. And then we have Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Look at the similarities. They both begin with the word behold. Secondly, they both indicate that there is a sending. And in fact, that's, that verb to send is the same verb. So the fact that there's a, oh, I will send is actually not really necessary in the New King James. It, it's both, it, both of it means, I am sending. Both of those verses, literally translated, would be, I am sending. I am sending. Okay. Thirdly, look at number three. In Malachi 3.1, it's referred to as, I'm sending a messenger. And in Malachi 4.5, he said, I'm sending Elijah the prophet. One is undefined, the other one is defined. Number four. This messenger in Malachi 3.1 is going to prepare the way before me. We're going to notice that that, that that me there is Jesus Christ. He is going to come and prepare the way before him. Look what the, next, look what the one in Malachi 4.6 does. He goes before and turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. There is an element of preparation there. An element of repentance. Look at number five. And in Malachi 3.2, there is very close association with the coming day of the Lord. 
Who can endure the day of Christ's coming? It's looking forward to that final day when Christ returns. Look at Malachi 4, verse 5. It says, Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now I submit to you that Malachi is speaking of one and the same prophecy here. I submit to you that it is one and the same prophecy with two different reference, two different types. On the one hand, John the Baptist is this coming messenger. John the Baptist is this coming prophet. He is this coming Elijah. And he came, as Jesus said, he has come, and he did prepare the way. Notice uh, number four there, he, he prepared the way. He was of sorts turning the hearts of the people to God. What was John's ministry? It was one of repentance. He was preparing the way for Jesus' first coming. But if you look at number five up there, I submit to you that number five, with respect to those, these prophecies, did not occur with John the Baptist. I would argue that this, in point five here, remains to be seen. The coming dreadful and great day of the Lord. Who can endure His coming? That kind of language, that kind of warning, looks forward. Looks forward to a second coming of Christ. So, again, let's break it down. Let's make one summary statement. What is occurring here? I kind of I put it in a sentence for you to hopefully understand. The prophecy in Malachi 3.1 is fulfilled in John the Baptist, but retains significance for a final fulfillment by a final messenger of God. And I'll point you to Revelation 11, verse 3. When you got time on your own, take a look. There's a final couple messengers of God, as a matter of fact. And I think that we can uh, take a really good guess there, a good biblical guess, that, that Revelation 11.3 is referring to this final messenger. It turns out to be two witnesses of God. Okay. And Walt Kaiser, by the way, last, last comment here, last quote. Walt Kaiser, a great and distinguished Old Testament scholar, probably one of the smartest Old Testament men alive today, in my opinion. Uh, he said this about Malachi 3.1 and, and 4.5. He said, Elijah must, still must come. Elisha still must come and restore all things before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Nevertheless, let no one say that Elijah has not already in some sense come, for our Lord will affirm the contrary. Elijah has come. John the Baptist was only a sample of a portion of the work that was to be done in the final day. So that's coming from Walt Kaiser. Uh, an Old Testament scholar who I deeply respect. Okay. Did we get through that? Did we make it through? That was the hard part. How do we do? We hanging in there? Okay. You say, Neil, what's the point? I mean, why do I have to rack my brain on stuff like this? You know what? It's rich. It is rich in truth to know how to understand difficult texts like this. It helps you to explain to others how prophecy is being fulfilled in Scripture. And it, it really is helpful. So I, I appreciate you hanging in there. And now we're going to get to uh, some of the remaining uh, portions here that, that God is going to be referring to, to Israel. He's going to get a little testy with them right now. Take a look. We're, we're going to be back now in uh, 
2.17 to 3.2. Let's, uh, let's read through it. Take a look up on your screen here. Excuse me, 2.17 to 3.1. And again, don't forget, where is the God of justice in 2.17? This is the theme statement. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, that's John the Baptist and a coming prophet. But then we have a second messenger. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And I submit to you that this is Jesus Christ. This is a little more easier to understand, I believe. We see there that the Lord is indicated. Uh, with the article the, that would always, almost virtually always include deity. Okay, This is a reference to deity. God is saying that there, there's a coming messenger to prepare the way, and then there is a divine messenger, Jesus Christ. The Lord is coming. And he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And I ask you, well, what were they seeking again? What were the people delighting in? What were they looking for? They were looking for the God of justice. Remember, they were saying, show yourself, God. Show yourself to us. We don't believe you're on our side. And the answer, the answer to the question, where is the God of justice? God says, here he is. It's my son, Jesus Christ. He is coming to be the God of justice. He is coming to render judgment and refinement and blessing. Why do you suppose they wanted this God of justice to come? They wanted God to punish the wicked. It was as if they were saying, we want you to come, we want you to come, Lord, and that you would judge the wicked around us, that you would judge all those who, who are doing evil. And God is saying, okay, I'm going to send my messenger, the Lord, my Son, Jesus Christ. But don't assume that you're blameless. Don't assume that you're blameless, Israel, because that coming of the Lord is going to be a day that is going to be unexpected to you. It's not just going to be a day of blessing, but it's also going to be a day of judgment and refinement. That's why he says in 3.2 that it's going to be a day that who can endure the day of his coming? Notice that Jesus comes to his temple. His temple. His temple. Which indicates that he has ownership of the temple just as much as the Father does. That he is the messenger of the covenant. And this most likely refers to God's covenant with Israel, his relationship with Israel, rather than a, a, a new covenant. But he's saying that Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant. He is the, the validation that I am still with you, Israel. He is the proof. He is the evidence that I am still the God of justice, that I am still the God who will oversee the affairs of men in a judicious way, and I will still watch over you, Israel. But again, Israel assumed themselves to be blameless. I can't stress that enough. They assumed that when, God, when the God of justice came, he would punish others, not them. When this God of justice came, he would punish the others, not them. And how often 
Does that occur in our lives? I, I think that sometimes, i, I got to be honest, I, I wish, and I, I hate to admit it, but when someone does me wrong, I, sometimes I wish retribution on them, right? We, we wish revenge on them. That God would punish their evil do, doings. And I do that at the expense of being introspective and recognizing my own sinfulness. That's what Israel's doing. They're saying, God, punish them. I'm, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Just punish those guys. If you're truly, truly seeking the Lord, you will concentrate on cleansing your own life, not gossiping about the life of another or wishing judgment on them. Think of Jesus as returning to your very life, to your very home, to inspect what is going on with you when He returns. This kind of reminds me of, uh, of uh, my wife and I when we have guests over. Okay, When we have guests over, when, when John and Katie Varela come over to dinner, uh, my wife, and, and she gave me the okay to talk about this, so I'm not getting in trouble here. She goes into clean mode. Okay, You know what clean mode is? How many of you husbands know what clean mode is for your wife? Okay, Alright, clean mode is like the equivalent of military boot camp in the Anderson household. Okay? Clean mode includes, first of all, she gets out a pen and paper and she starts frantically walking around the house and noting all of the things that need cleaning, right? And then she subdivides it uh, on my side and her side. Fortunately, I've, I've helped her to realize that in, in South Orange County, it's typical for the wife to do nine, nine to one ratio. You know, wife does nine, husband does one, chores, you know? And I... Oh, great, I just revealed that, but anyhow. Uh, but she, she knows in her heart that, that when the house is clean, it reflects well on, on her and on us. And it's true, it does. I mean, we all do that when, when guests come over. We try to make the, tidy things up a little bit. She also knows that if John and Katie come over and they're eating on our dining room table, and that table's dirty, that's going to reflect poorly on us. It's going to reflect poorly on us. Well, Jesus is coming back. And you and I are fools to think that we can excitedly anticipate this coming of the Lord without paying attention to cleaning up our own lives, cleaning up our own households. If we don't do that, if we don't introspect and consider our our lives, our words, our actions before God, when Christ comes, it will reflect poorly on us. It will reflect poorly on us. Be ready for His coming. Be ready for His coming. And look what it says in verse 2. Let's move on. Verse 2. Who can endure this day? Israel said, oh, we can take it. We want the God of justice to come so He can punish the wicked and we can receive blessings. God says, uh-uh. Who can endure? Who can stand? And those two words, endure and stand, are uh, somewhat like courtroom words in the Old Testament. Endure meant to, who, who, can, uh, who can make a case for themselves? To stand up meant, who can intercede on behalf of themselves? In other words, Israel's saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to prove innocent. And God is saying, no, 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 no. No one can endure. No one is innocent. When, the, when I come, 
it will be a great and dreadful day. There will not just be blessing. There will be a time of refinement, a time of, of judgment. Verse 3. He, Jesus. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. We see here this idea of refinement, of purification. And notice, those of you who have listened to the past couple Sundays, who is he refining? Who is he refining? The priests. Why is he refining the priests? They were the leaders of Israel who were leading the people astray. Letting them bring the blind animals on the sacrifice of God, on the altar of God. He purges the leaders. Take note of that, leaders, teachers. Now, James suggests that. James says, hey, you who teach, be careful. There will be a stricter judgment for you. God goes to the top. And he says, I'm going to watch the people who have others entrusted to them. You who are in positions of leadership, consider that. God is going to have a stricter process of judgment, of refinement for you as he does with the Levitical priests, with the priests of Israel. He goes to the top. Refine, purify. Who is being purged? The Levites, the religious leaders. Why are the Levites being purged? Why are they being refined? And this gets into kind of a, a beautiful, almost again, poetic part of Malachi. He says that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. In verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Why were they purged? Why, why are we refined? Why are we cleansed? The biblical answer is, so that we can have a pure and undefiled worship of God. We don't just cleanse ourselves for our sake. We cleanse ourselves, and God cleanses us for His sake. The best way I can describe it is, you know, you and I, we take showers every morning, at least most of us, you know, and, and we don't just take a shower for ourselves, do we? We take a shower so that we would be presentable to others. If uh, my good friend Jack Culp, whoa, Jack, if my good friend Jack Culp has unkept hair, shoddy clothes and, and has bad breath and goes into a business meeting, how do you think that business meeting is going to fare? Not too well. No, instead, Jack Culp looks good every time he goes out to a business meeting. He showers, he gets ready, he gets, he gets presentable. And he doesn't just do it for him, he does it so that the business deal would go well, so that he would be presentable, so that he could seal the deal. God refines us not just for our sake, but for His sake. That His worship, His glory, His honor would be pure and undefiled from us. The sacrifice that we give Him, that it would be pure. That's why He refines us. Excuse me, familiarity. I can't say that today. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? 
Familiarity breeds contempt. And, and it says here that they had done these sacrifices in the days of old, but they had forgotten about it. They, they were doing this pure and undefiled worship of God, but they got familiar with God. And then they started losing focus, losing sight. Don't become too familiar with the Lord. Don't assume that, oh, I, I know this Bible. I, I know God. I've been a Christian for many years. I've learned nothing new under the sun here. Once you get into that stage, your offering and your worship of God will become muted and blurred and it will not be that pure, undefiled worship of God. Instead, recognize that our God is a mysterious God. Someone from whom you can learn from every day. Open up the Word of God if you feel familiar with God and read some of those difficult texts, some of those passages you can't understand and that will reignite that sense of mystery that will reignite a sense of refinement in your life that you might have a pure offering toward God. And finishing up, okay, verse 5 and 6. Here we go. And God is going to come near them for judgment. Look what he says. He says, I'll be a swift witness. Notice witness. Again, courtroom scene. God's going to be a witness against the wicked, he says. Don't worry, Israel. I will take care of the wicked. I'll take care of the sorcerers, the adulterers, the perjurers. Those who exploit wage earners, the widows, the orphans, against those who turn away a stranger or an alien, because those folks, they don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. But you know what's interesting about this? Is that at least two of those, adultery and perjury, were being committed by Israel. You read Malachi chapter 1 and 2. Those two, at the very least, were being committed by the Jews. So God is saying, I'm going to judge these kinds of things. Oh, and by the way, you're not entirely blameless. It's kind of a subtle subtle jab there. God is reminding them, hey, pay attention to your lives. And he finishes up with a rather odd statement. Verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He speaks of his permanency, his immutability, his changelessness. And then he says, you're not consumed. You are not destroyed, O sons of Jacob. And this is in reference to, again, the covenant with Israel. God is saying, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you do, I have made a covenant with you through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I have made a covenant with you and I will remain faithful to that covenant and I will not destroy you entirely. There will be a remnant that comes from you, Israel. Where is the God of justice? He's right here. He's remained faithful to the covenant and He has not destroyed you. He still has a love and a care and a concern in his heart for you, Israel. You will not be utterly destroyed. That shows just the beauty of God's faithfulness toward us. In the spite of us wearying him, of us bringing him grief, and yet he says, I'm still going to remain faithful to you. That's his promise. Okay, what have we learned? Four things. You know, again... This kind of a passage in Scripture is a little bit hard to grab some personal application. I'm not going to deny that. This is a, a tougher, tougher text. It just is, by nature. 
but it helps us to understand God better. And there are four things I want you to understand about what we've learned here today. The first is this. Prophecy can be fulfilled by multiple reference or types. We saw that in John the Baptist and Elijah. That's a very difficult concept that if you grab hold of and begin to understand as you read your Old Testament, that's going to come to life. You're going to see prophecy in types. In types of fulfillment. Secondly, the second coming and the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ includes refinement. For what? For the purpose of creating pure, undefiled worship of God. There's a process of refinement that we will experience during the reign of Christ. At least the, the, the priests will be experiencing, but I believe the scripture is true that we will all be experiencing a sense of refinement so that we can have that pure and undefiled worship of God. God is especially going to be, be taking care of the leaders in that sense. Thirdly, God remains faithful to his covenant with Israel despite how she has wearied him. He remains faithful despite how Israel wearied God and how we weary God from time to time. And fourthly, God will act decisively. He will show himself to be the God of justice in the last day. Where is the God of justice? He is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. 